Today's passage includes another object lesson of Jeremiah, uh, a lesson that has something people can visually see. Jeremiah is kind of known for this in the Old Testament. He's not the only Old Testament prophet to use object lessons, but he's probably the best known for doing so. You remember the linen tunic, often known as the underwear, uh, but I think it was a tunic. Uh, you remember the pottery that he smashed. You might remember even the command not to marry was, in a sense, an object lesson before the people. And here is another one uh, that the people could see that he walked around with that they might, they might learn uh, from this lesson. Now, in chapter 26, where we were last week, we went back in time earlier in Jeremiah's ministry, you may remember. Today, we're moving forward about 15 years I think I say this every week, Jeremiah is not written chronologically, but I think it's helpful to remind ourselves where we are in the storyline because as we're in this second half of the book or the second scroll of Jeremiah, things are are arranged more, uh, uh, not that they were chronological initially, but they are arranged more thematically as we've seen already in chapter 26. This is another one of those examples. So we're moving forward about 15 years from where we were last week to the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah. Early in Jeremiah's ministry, you remember, there's the call to repentance with the hope that if the people would turn, if they would relent, if they would repent and, and acknowledge and obey God, then God would, uh, or God would relent toward them, that he would not destroy them and the land. But as the years go by, that message shifts. It still is a call to repentance, but with the certainty that judgment was coming. And that is because the wheels have already begun to turn. And in this case, by the time of Zedekiah, they are already in motion. Because it was Babylon, the nation, King Nebuchadnezzar, who put Zedekiah on the throne in the first place. So as you probably remember, Zedekiah comes. uh, Once he he rises in power, and Jehoiachin, who was the the current king, surrendered. He had only been on the throne for three months. And so... Nebuchadnezzar takes him and all of the nobles and so forth away. We saw that in Jeremiah 24. First Kings, or Second Kings rather, 24, gave us more detail. And in there we learn not only did he take the craftsmen and the nobles along with the king and the, and the king's mother, but that he also took many of the pieces from the temple. So that's where Jeremiah is now speaking about what's left. What's left in the temple? Is it going to be carried away? This is all we have. Nebuchadnezzar's already taken some. And so that's the position that the the people are in. And so the false prophets, the peace prophets as they were called, were telling the people, don't worry. Babylon's reign is going to be short. Nebuchadnezzar's not going to come back. He's just going to fade away. He's going to send back all of the, 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 the pieces that he's stolen. Everything's going to be restored. And not only was this happening in Judah, as we've already seen, but it's, it was happening in the other nations as well. As Nebuchadnezzar rose in power, the other nations were fearful as well. Like, you know, is this, this guy was becoming the next superpower. And so is he going to come into our nation and is he, is he going to come and threaten us? And so in their nations, these, these non-believing nations, there we see the list, prophets, diviners, dreamers, fortune tellers, sorcerers, these people who practice the dark arts. They were telling their kings and their leaders, hey, nothing to worry about. Nebuchadnezzar's not going to come here. We have nothing to fear. So all of this, this concern that's rising, fear that's rising among these nations has led to some kind of gathering now in Jerusalem that we see in chapter 27. Evidently, 
it's, it, we're not told this, but it seems like Zedekiah has called for this because the nations have come to him as opposed to them going some, to some other nation. So it appears that Zedekiah has called together to form some kind of coalition. And it's an effort to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. He, he served for 11 years, but he ultimately rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. So I think rebellion was probably always in his heart. But it was all about survival, political power remaining in that position. No nation wants to be subservient to another nation. We get that. No ruler wants to be ruled by another. And so this was being done with some effort that Babylon's bigger than all of us, but if we join together, maybe we can resist or oppose Babylon. Well, that coalition never grew, never got any traction, never came to fruition. As Psalm 33.10 points out, the Lord brings the council of nations to nothing He frustrates the plans of the peoples. And so whatever was going on, we're not given much detail. It didn't come about to anything. But that's the reason why we see the nations mentioned here, why they're in Jerusalem in the first place. Kings had sent their envoys uh, to, to be present for whatever this summit was. And so it is in this context that Jeremiah is now instructed to put this yoke on and to walk around among all the dignitaries and the envoys wearing this contraption. He would then address the king of Judah, Zedekiah, with a similar message, wearing the yoke, and then finally speak to the priests and the people. And the message itself is somewhat surprising. The message is, submit to Nebuchadnezzar. Do what he says. Put your neck under the yoke. That was the object lesson. Just as I'm wearing this yoke as I walk around you, put your neck under the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar and submit to him, or you will face sword, famine, and pestilence. Now, why would God do this? Why would God raise up a pagan king and call not just the nations to submit to him, but his nation, his people, Judah, In this passage, again, God calls Nebuchadnezzar my servant. Why would he choose to use someone who lives in opposition to him? Well, the Lord doesn't answer all of our why questions in this passage, but we know the answer why because we see it throughout Scripture. Everything God does and the reason that he made you and me is for his own glory. That's why we were created, Isaiah 43, 7, for his glory. And so here he is putting on display in an upside down, backwards, kind of beyond our imagination kind of way, a situation for his own glory. I will tear down and I will build back. I will take away life and I will give life. I will erase and I will create. Why? Because he's the only one who can do it. To quote the prophet Isaiah, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. The answer for Judah to their question why and the answer for the nations and the answer for us today is simply God is God. And he is putting that on display. And so for us, even when it doesn't make sense to obey him, we are called to obey. Now, we're not being called today to submit ourselves under the yoke of a superpower, okay? 
But we are being called to live according to His Word, which is, in its own sense, opposition to a great superpower. We are being called to live quite contrary to the way the world thinks that we ought to live. So there is, I think, a number of ways that we can understand this relates to our own time and, the, in a sense, the suffering that we experience as a result. Even when there is wicked leadership over us, or events that happen around us or to us in our lives, God is still God. We saw in the previous passage that His patience flows from His unending love. Everything He does is motivated by His love. And so even when things don't make sense, we have to trust that He still loves us. And what He is doing is somehow, some way, going to work to accomplish His purposes And be for our good. And so we must learn, as the people did in Jeremiah's day, that it always makes sense to trust God. Even when it doesn't make sense to trust God, it always makes sense to trust Him. Even in the case of submitting to someone like Nebuchadnezzar, it is the best and wisest thing to trust and obey the Lord our God. Let me make one clarification. I did kind of already get ahead of myself. And that is, Jeremiah 27 is a narrative. It's important how we understand different genres of Scripture. This is a narrative within a book of prophecy that is describing something that happens. It described a command that the Lord gave through the prophet to Judah, the nations uh, around them. But this is not a universal principle. Okay, You can't take Jeremiah 27 and say that this is God's will for our lives, that we are to submit to whatever superpower is reigning in the world. I don't think anybody... Your minds probably didn't even go there, but I want you to see that that's not how you apply this passage. Scripture does call us to submit to the authorities placed over us, be they in the family, in the government, at work, or elsewhere. But the command does not extend to tolerating abuse or serving sinful commands. So if the government tells us to do something as sinful, we resist. If someone tries to do harm to us who is an authority over us, we seek help. We don't tolerate this kind of wickedness. God spoke against this kind of wickedness throughout His Word. He says, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression. And so there is a place to resist wickedness in our lives. We don't just have to lay down and be doormats, but it takes much wisdom and grace. I just want to make that distinction here that we don't misapply Jeremiah 27 in our own day. God has allowed for things to happen. In this case, a pagan king to come and for the people to submit to. And we and, and I'm laying some groundwork here because we're going to get to some passages later that I think are often not necessarily misunderstood, but maybe misapplied when the people go into exile and he's telling them how they should live their lives. So I'm laying some groundwork now that this is a unique place in time in the nation of Judah that God is, is giving them this instruction and what he is doing is to show his glory to the world. Now, in our day, we see the effects of sin no less. We see uh, wicked rulers rise and fall. We look out through history. We see this occur again and again. This does not mean that we are to blame God for allowing sin to enter the world. Sin came because he gave Adam and Eve. He put them in the garden. He gave them instruction. They did what? They disobeyed. Sin enters the world. What do we do? He gives us instruction. We disobey. Sin is on us. He is not the author of sin. 
We are not to blame Him, and trusting Him is not tolerating sin. In all of this, in our own sin and the sins done against us, we are looking for a day when He's going to make everything right. And this is the great hope that we have, because what we're in right now is this pressure cooker of life when it doesn't feel like things are ever going to get fixed. And we are being called again and again to put our hope and our trust in Him, that we would not be either given to grief and despair, or that we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't give in to the temptation to run away and say there's no hope, and uh, there's no one to believe, and this life is, is, is pointless and is meaningless. He is calling us again and again, even when it doesn't make sense, trust me, trust me. So look in verse 1 now. Again, I remind you we're in the reign of Zedekiah, so we're forward in the ministry of Jeremiah a bit. And the instructions are uh, for him to, to wear this yoke. Now, he's given some specifics, you know, take a bar, take some straps. I think it's likely that he probably made a custom yoke, but it's also possible that he, he grabbed a yoke that was already made. If he did, it would have been quite a... Quite a contraption because yokes were typically made for two oxen. Oxen are a lot bigger than people. Uh, you know, just it, it would have been really, really bizarre. But even if he made something for himself, it still would have been bizarre for him to walk through the street with this thing on. And that was kind of the point. Jeremiah was to look bizarre. He was to be obvious. The point wasn't in the size of the yoke. The point was just to be obvious that people would notice it. To, to, to point them to what the yoke represented. And that was a call to subjugation under Babylon. So Jeremiah would have been obvious. It was, it was, it was un, un, unlikely for anyone to have done something like this before. And even more so, not just in the city, but among all the dignitaries. You know, when the dignitaries come to town, things usually get cleaned up, swept up a little bit. And, and you know, there might be some extra security, keep the riffraff out. And then here comes Jeremiah traipsing in among all these dignitaries, these envoys from other nations. He stood out, and that was the point. So that they would hear, so that they would see this object lesson that he would declare to the kings of this countries by the hand of the envoys who have come to Jerusalem, the representatives who have come, that they would hear. And God introduces himself to them as the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. And then he goes on to describe his work of creation. Why does he do that to the pagan nations? Well, because they don't recognize him as God. And so he introduces himself, hello, by my hand, by my great power, I made everything that exists. It's all mine, and I do with it as I please. So, by the way, this is what I'm about to do. And if you want to live, you'll obey and you'll submit. That's, that's the gist of God's message to these pagan kings. He says, by my great power and my outstretched arm, indicating his authority as creator, his omnipotence through the act of creation, and his sovereignty over all creation. It is to get their attention, to help them understand who he is. That same phrase used again and again through Scripture to describe his deliverance of the people from Egypt. By my great power and my outstretched arm, I delivered them. So he's saying, in essence, to them, lest you realize, or if you don't want to acknowledge, I alone am God. And because of this, verse 5, I give the earth and all therein to whomever it seems right to me. Now, this is a hard message for anyone to receive, but it is especially hard when it's a ruler who is not a benevolent ruler. You know, when someone we like is put into power, we, we might receive this message as good news, but Nebuchadnezzar wasn't one of those such people. He was not a, uh, a good king. 
And so it is hard for us to imagine that the Lord would give this message to the nations, but even especially more so to his own people, to Judah, because Nebuchadnezzar was wicked. And yet God often accomplishes his purposes through even our sins. I pointed out the crucifixion last week as the prime example, but this is another one where we see God use a sinful king to accomplish all of his purposes, and we see that through history. He's going to do that through Nebuchadnezzar, through his short yet powerful rule through the known world. And so he tells the envoys that if any ruler will not put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that I will allow Nebuchadnezzar to destroy that nation. So that's the call. He tells them not to listen to those who practice the dark arts. Notice that in the nations, he lists those people. It's not that those uh, uh, sorcerers and such would have, would have not been present in Judah, but they would have been much fewer because God had forbid that. But they were, they were, there were many of these in these pagan nations. And so the, the warning there is, is relevant that, that he not listen to them. And then the final remark is clear. Any nation... Verse 11, that will bring its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him. I will leave on its own land to work it and to dwell there, declares the Lord. So this is how you're to survive. How backwards. This is not what you'd expect. Submit yourself to the tyrant king and you'll live. That's what he tells them. This unconventional, mysterious way, simply obey and trust the creator, the God of all. Next, somehow Jeremiah gets a hearing in the king of Zedekiah, in, or in, in the hearing of King Zedekiah. And he comes before him, he's still wearing the yoke, verse 12, and he comes before him with the same message that he's given to the foreign kings to bring his neck under the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, again, this is hard, a hard message for any king to hear because a king is, you know, he's the, he's, he's the, he's the boss. It's good to be the king. And so this, this, this message comes in, but in particular, in this case, Nebuchadnezzar has just called all these nations who've sent their envoys to, in a sense, plot against the king of Babylon. And now God sends his prophet to come in and say, not only are you not going to be successful in that, I want you to submit to the king of Babylon. I want you to obey him and do what he says. If you want to live, you'll do this. What a strange difficult message for Zedekiah to hear. And then Jeremiah presents the first why question. Why will you and your people die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence, as the Lord has spoken concerning any nation that will not serve the king of Babylon? Why will you choose death? When the Lord renewed the covenant with his people in Deuteronomy 30 before um, before they entered the promised land, he spoke to them saying, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them. This question that Jeremiah now asks Zedekiah, why will you do this, is rooted in this same covenantal logic. Why would you choose death when you can choose life simply by obeying the command God has given you? Yeah, it doesn't make sense to you. Don't worry about that. God said it. Trust him. Trust him and do what he says. Then he adds the warning not for, him, for him not to listen to the false prophets. He's told the, the pagan kings not to listen to theirs. Now he's telling Zedekiah, don't listen. The, the false prophets in this case were not only saying, I mean, Babylon's already come. That's why Zedekiah is on the throne. But now they're saying that, that Babylon's reign isn't going to last very long. 
that, that there's really nothing to worry about. They're going to go on to tell the people that, that, that the stuff that they've, they've taken is going to be returned. And, and Jeremiah tells Zedekiah that God has not sent them. They are lying. Do not listen to these prophets. The third message, verse 16. Jeremiah goes before the priests and the people of Judah with the same, same message. Bring your neck under the yoke of, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar. Although the word yoke isn't used here, I think it's likely this was part of the, the whole message. I think Jeremiah was probably still wearing it. It was still the object lesson, even though it's, it, it really isn't necessary for the message to, to, to be what it is. But notice how instead, so before he's been speaking to kings, right? Rulers, through the envoys to the nations and then directly to Zedekiah. But now he's speaking to the priests and the people. Look what he focuses in on. He focuses in on the elements within the temple, the art, articles that were in the temple. And these were precious to the people. They were precious in the sense that many of them were overlaid with gold and silver and other precious, uh, they had precious stones in them, so they were valuable, but they were a symbol of their national pride. We've seen that throughout the book of Jeremiah, that the people had a sense of pride in their worship, being it wrongly attributed to, you know, uh, in, in some ways, certainly there were some who recognized that this is how God instructed them to worship, so it was, it was not necessarily a bad thing for everyone. I think for many it had become a form of sentimentalism, and maybe even superstition that they thought the Lord will never allow the temple to be destroyed. But either way, no one wanted to see the elements of the temple carried off to a foreign land. And so the the Lord uses this idea to call the people, serve the king of Babylon and live, he says in verse 17. Why should this city become a desolation? Now, Nebuchadnezzar, as I've said, he's already carried off some of the articles in the temple when he took Jeconiah away on his first visit. And this is where Jeremiah tells the people to ignore the false prophets. It is a lie that they're prophesying to you. And then he, he, he mocks them a little bit. He challenges them, uh, suggesting that if they believe they're right, then they should just pray. If you think you're right, then just pray and God will protect the vessels. They will not get carried off, right? And Jeremiah is doing this because he knows they are false prophets. He's mocking them. He knows God had God has already sent uh, Babylon to come once, and Babylon is going to come back, and they are going to carry off all the valuables. And this is how he finishes the message to the people. Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 21, the God of Israel concerning the vessels that are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah, and in Jerusalem, they shall be carried to Babylon. There it is. They're going to get carried off. And they will remain there until the day when I visit them, declares the Lord. But then verse 22, then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. So have no doubt this is what's going to happen. So to the kings, he says, submit yourself under the yoke. It's a, it's a, it's a, he's speaking to their power and authority. To the people, he's speaking to what they treasured most in their heart, this national identity, the temple worship, and the, and the items that were in there. And he's saying they are going to get carried away. But Nebuchadnezzar will, after he returns and carries them off, will one day be overcome. God will accomplish all of his purposes, even through someone as unlikely as Nebuchadnezzar. But note, there is a message of restoration. God promises to bring the elements back and the people with them. He promises to restore the place, the the temple and its furnishings. And more than 70 years later, Cyrus, king of Persia, overthrew Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And it's interesting, if you look maybe this afternoon in Ezra chapter 1, you can read the account where Cyrus orders an accountant, in essence, 
to take and to, to count out all of the, the items that were taken away to ensure that everything was returned. And he did. I mean, that's unheard of. It's, I mean, that, you know, why, why didn't they you know, <laughs> use them for their own treasuries? It wasn't God's plan. God had everything returned. So this part of history is bizarre. It's not how any of us would have imagined it or written it. We wouldn't have thought it this way because it all seems so backwards. God raises up a pagan king to serve his plans, not only against Judah, but against the nations. God sends Jeremiah to tell Judah and the nations to submit to this king if they want to live. Judah doesn't obey, so the king eventually comes and he does all that Jeremiah prophesied. We're fast-forwarding now. But then, after 70 years, the Lord sends the people back to the land and restores them and all the items of the temple. Well, we may not be in that same situation, but I think there is a parallel, and that is our own longing, our own waiting for our restoration. Because this message that was written down was not only to the people as they were being carried. I mean, Jeremiah was speaking to the people before they're carried off in exile, but Baruch was writing all of this down so that these scrolls would go with the people, and they would be a message to the people in exile who longed for the restoration and, 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 and looking for that day when the Lord would deliver them. We too are in that time of waiting, waiting for our restoration. We have been called to suffer for a little while in this life as we face the effects of sin in our own hearts and our bodies and the world around us. We long for the day when everything will be made right, restored, but we're not there yet. And so we hold on to the promise of the gospel that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. First Peter 5, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He himself will restore us. And not just us, but everything that has been lost or stolen. That was the promise that God gave his people before they ever entered the promised land. Through Moses, he spoke to the people and said, When you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. If you think that that great promise is just about a land and a people and a place in history, then you have a very small understanding of what those words represent. There is so much more in that promise a future that awaits all of us in the new heavens and the new earth. No matter how far you've wandered, God says, even if you wander into the heavens without a spacesuit, because they didn't have them back then, right? Even if you're lost in the heavens, I will gather you. You cannot wander too far. No matter what you have lost, I will restore it. Unless the people or we ever think it was about possessions and land, he promises to restore them and circumcise their heart. If you think the new covenant doesn't show up until Jeremiah 31, here it is in Deuteronomy 30 from the lips of Moses before the people ever get into the land, before they ever have a king, before they ever have a temple to worship in, God promised them 
promises them restoration that would include a new heart so that you will love me with all your heart, soul, and mind. Here it is, Deuteronomy 30. Jesus said it this way, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. All that has been lost, given up, or forsaken for Christ's sake will be paid back. And not only are we saved to eternal life, eternity will be filled with completed restoration. The prophet Joel, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. Think of that. Years, time. The richest person in the world cannot buy time, cannot give you time. And yet God promises that time itself will be restored. The years that have been lost. The point is not the particulars. The point is our hope is firmly rooted in confidence that Christ will bring to completion the work that is promised to us in the gospel. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, It is finished. And so it was. The debt was paid for our sin. The wrath of God was satisfied. And yet sin is yet to be removed. We're in the now and the not yet. The day is coming, though, when sin will be gone and the fullness of this restoration will be realized. In the meantime, we are suffering in this life. But after we have suffered a little while, God promises, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. We've been justified. We're being saved from the power of sin, sanctification. We will be saved from the presence of sin. It's going to be wiped out, glorification. This is our blessed hope. Life may not be what you dreamed or imagined. You may have lost and grieved more than you ever thought possible. Yet our hope is precious. We will be restored. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. Let's pray.